0: If you guys have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open to the book of Esther, book of Esther. We are going to get into chapter one this morning. Can tell by the overhead that we're going to talk about power. There have been many men throughout time that could boast of great power, um, Hard to match the strength of some of the world's strongest men. Uh, I can actually barely pronounce their names, but you could look at this guy. put some pictures up there. This first guy's name is Big Z or Zadranas Savikas. I think I'm saying that wrong. Uh, He's pretty strong. Just to give you some stats on this guy, I think he's like 6'3 or 4". He just weighs a measly 400 pounds. Uh, His arms are about the size of a playground ball, if you can imagine that. His neck's like a basketball. Just a big, big dude. Obviously, Big Z, who can lift, I don't know, eight tires, (laughs) however much those weigh. He can boast of great power. Uh, This next guy, his name's Bill Kazmier, another kind of powerful legend, uh, just to give you some, yeah, look at him. <laughs> I think he's hurt right there. <laughs> this is hurting. Uh, he, uh, I think. Let me just give you his numbers. He squatted 925 pounds. Just no big deal. He can bench press 661. That's his record. Anybody get close to that? Who benches 600 pounds? Yep, I knew it. Uh, he deadlifts 886. And he's only had 13 hernias. Uh, anyway, powerful. This kind of power is intimidating, right? We look at guys like that, it's, it's intimidating. That kind of power, it's, it's difficult to hide, and it has a way of, of, of standing out. It's hard to miss those big monsters like that. Um, other powerful men, they don't always stand out so obviously power it isn't always about you know muscles powerful men business elites presidents kings politically powerful men powerful leaders over the world they showcase their power a, a little differently uh, maybe in the way that they dress expensive suits you know they got to look a certain way the the right kind of fancy clothes are Armani and Gucci, I think those are two fancy brands. I'm not totally sure. You can correct me afterwards. But powerful people, they showcase their power in, in, in different ways. The clothes or maybe the, the fancy cars with the doors that open like up instead of out. I mean, that just sends a message, right? This guy's or this, this lady's somebody to, somebody to take seriously. Power can be displayed In the way we spend money, it can be displayed in the ability to give an order. Power can be on display as we think about how those consequences can be placed on somebody when they don't do what you ask them to do. Power displayed in in lots of different ways, from from muscles to, to money. There have been many people throughout time who could boast of great power. They make serious efforts to display that power. Again, not just the Arnold Schwarzeneggers, but world leaders alike. And in the Bible, it's interesting because God's people often find themselves dealing with the world's powerful leaders. Uh, They often kind of find themselves in the crosshairs of corrupt power. Think of Exodus, that first one comes to mind. Pharaoh used his power to enslave God's people. Get into the book of Judges. There's just more throughout time in the promised land. Israel dealt with you know, the kings of the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Moabites and so many other groups of powerful people that came in to really kind of suppress God's people so many powerful kings throughout history. You could recognize the, the Roman leaders during the time of Christ and the early church and the horrible things that they did, the, the dreadful things they did to display their perceived power. Even our, our recent history is, is full of events of, of powerful leaders doing some pretty horrible and dreadful things. And Think of you know a list of presidents and politicians that represent that corrupt leadership, but but power on display. And as we look around, it's power that can be scary, and it's power that even in junior high might start to cause you to worry. Um, just like most of us know, we don't belong in like a strongman competition with those big powerful guys most of us also recognize that we can't compete with the power that some of these human leaders have in our world. We know that we're a little bit outgunned. And as Christians, what do we do when that power seems to be targeting us? How do we respond when we think about this this, uh, display of power when it seems to kind of fix itself on us? How should we think about powerful people when they target Christians? Our text this morning in Esther chapter one, it helps us to see that no matter how things may look, it helps us to start to look at this, no matter how it might appear, we can continue and we we should continue to trust in God. True power. It doesn't lie with the powerful of this world. True power lies elsewhere. And I'm going to borrow a, a line from Psalm 62 11. You could write that down. That's a, that's a really helpful verse. It's going to help us this morning as we look at Esther chapter 1. But Psalm 62:11 says, true power or power belongs with God. So our big idea, no matter how things appear, power belongs to God. Let's go ahead and look at verse one of Esther chapter one. I'm I'm just gonna read this whole opening chapter and try to help us capture this narrative a little bit. Okay, keep in the back of your mind, power belongs to God. Esther one, verse one. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia, And Medea, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed. The king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, In the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman and Biztha and Harbona and Bigtha and Bagtha and Zether and Carcass. Those are some names, huh? The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by these eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. The king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and were close to him, Karshina, Shethar, Edmatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom, According to law, what's to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. In the presence of the king and the princes, Mimukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persia and Medea who have heard of the queen's conduct, they'll speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him. Let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her royal position to another who's more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he'll make, is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small." This word pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Memucan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province, according to its script, and to every people, according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. True power belongs to God, and I want to help us see that by kind of chopping up this chapter into three sections, okay? We're going to look first at these three parties, but we're going to call it a presentation of power. Verses 1 to 9 is this kind of first look, presentation of power. And before we look at these three different parties, we, we get our story here, and it begins with the author's presentation of this king, and it starts with this grandiose picture. His reign is over 127 provinces. And those regions that are listed here, they're much smaller sections of his entire realm. It's a really weird way to talk about his kingdom, but I think the author does it on purpose. He, he really governed over, ruled over like 20 big sections but 20 doesn't sound nearly as cool or impressive as 127. So that sounds better. Let's go with that. It's, it's big. It's from India to to Kush. It's the greatest empire that's ever been known at this time. So let's make sure it sounds as big as possible. And that's exactly what the author does. And it, it kind of aids his purpose of painting this rich picture of the Persian empire and and really the power of king Hasarus. look how large his kingdom is i mean 127 provinces and then he jumps right into this specific event he doesn't want to give history of this king he doesn't care really much else about it he, he wants to jump to this this event in the 3rd year of his reign and it's the first Party worth looking at. Here in the heart of Susa, where the palace was located, Ahasuerus put on this great, grand feast. Look at it. It says it lasted for 180 days, and everyone important is invited. And look, I know we sometimes wish our birthday lasted like more than just the one day. Like, we just get a birthday weekend or like a week or whatever? But this party lasts for six months. And why such a long feast? I mean, that's a big party. Talk about like too much birthday. I mean, this is a serious thing. And, And I want to help us understand it. At the time that Xerxes, again, that's his Greek name or Ahasuerus, that was his name in Hebrew, The time that he took the throne, it's kind of a a regrouping time for the Persian Empire. His dad, his name was Darius, he was just defeated really, really bad. And so the, the empire is sort of catching its breath in preparation for its next big fight against the Greeks. And this long party with this kind of rolling attendance, all these groups coming in succession, it has a purpose. Ahasuerus is smart. He's, he's bringing in these certain groups at different times, flexing his wealth and showcasing his power for a reason. Look, verse 4 says, He displayed the riches of his royal glory and the, and the splendor of his great majesty. Why? Because he's hoping to win their support the nobles and the officials and the princes. This empire is made up of so many different kinds of people with languages and, and cultures and religions. It's, it's not easy to maintain that kind of unity. And so he puts on this six-month party to gain loyalty, not just from the best, but from all of them, from everyone. And it's a massive celebration Kind of get that flavor from it. Anything you want, we got it. Anything you want to do at this party, it's yours. Enjoy yourself. The king insists there's no rules. Have a good time. It's a massive celebration, but it's a demonstration of his power. This king has power. What, you know, This was his way of sort of saying, you think a six-month party is a big deal? oh, this is just the beginning. You stick with me. I'll I'll show you that there's much more to come. And now we come to this kind of second party, a follow-up party in verses four and five. I mean, what do you do after you have a six-month party? If you're thinking, let's have another party, you and Ahasuerus would get along. That's what he does. One more party, one more week. It's a smaller event. It's it's this little feast for all those who lived kind of locally with him. Everyone's invited, verse five says, from the, the greatest to the least. Maybe it's a reward for the, the people who helped put on the big party. I don't I don't know. But what do we see? Such detail and its luxury and its power and it's money. And it's this opulence. It's verse 6 and 7. Look at it. The best decorations. I don't even get this, but it's purple linen and silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver. The floor even is like precious stones. Uh, Drinks are served up in gold cups. I mean, this is pinkies up party for sure. I mean, fancy pants, that's what's happening here. And the whole goal of this party is just for Ahasuerus to show off how much power he has, how much money he has, his excess. The king is important. He has wealth and he can do whatever he wants to do. I think he's reminding them why they want to be on his team why they would want to join them, especially as they're getting ready to prepare, to, to, to march, to battle. More parties like this are going to follow, more reward to come for, for those who are with me. So Hosseris is being pictured by the author as a real force to be reckoned with. It's scary how much power he has and, and what he can do. At least that's what it looks like. The 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 original reader, the the first group of people who would have read this, their history is much closer, and they would have known. It was just a few years after this, Ahasuerus did go to battle, and he was horribly defeated. He lost everything, totally depleted of all of his wealth. It was a sad loss, but the author doesn't want to talk about that. He wants to remind them that that it looked a certain way, This is on purpose, the the splendor, the majesty, this powerful king. Party number three in verse nine, very short. It's the party of the queen. And ironically, it's a total absence of detail, except one. And do you see the comparison here? The the finite details of Ahasuerus' feast. I'm sure the queen's party was just as lavish, just as excessive. But what does it say in verse nine? Her party was in the palace, and lest we forget, the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. There is no escape from his powerful presence. It's all about this guy. And this is the land that the Jews were living in. We have to remind ourselves that this is the land that the God's people find themselves in exile. Scary level of power, this king who controlled them—he's—he's not someone to mess with. What can we do in the face of such power, when it you know looks like we're kind of hopelessly outmatched? Psalm sixty-two. Let me give you a few more verses besides verse eleven. It says in verse five, "For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock, He only my salvation, my fortress, I will not be shaken. I don't need to fear this powerful human leader. Psalm 62, seven, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And we might be tempted to ask why. And I think the psalmist anticipates that question. And so he answers it in verse 11. God has made this known. Power belongs to God, period. Despite how powerful one nation, one king, one leader may appear to look, God continues to move all of history to accomplish his purpose. God alone is the king of kings. He sits high above on his throne, much higher than King Ahasuerus. Don't be undone by the perception of human power. Power belongs to God. And this presentation of power, it, it kind of moves next to number two, no pun intended, the party pooper, verses 10 to 12. Vashti, okay, her name, it's a, it's a Persian word for beautiful, uh, really it's like strikingly beautiful woman. She's very, very pretty. Even her name is pretty. And Ahashra sent for her to display her royal beauty before these men he's so desperate to impress. Vashti was his trophy wife. Vashti was just this another kind of reminder of the power of this king, the glory of this king. I can kind of hear him asking at this sort of smaller follow-up party, hey, are you guys having fun? You having a good time? Are you impressed with me yet? Uh, let me show you something really impressive. Go get Vashti. I-, I want you to see my wife. I want you to see my queen. It shouldn't surprise us that a Ahasuerus His method to get her is so excessive. He doesn't just send one. He sends seven officials to get her. Why send one when you can send seven, I guess? This king just continuing to display his power and his might in order to win the support of these men. And how embarrassing to have his queen disobey his order. How embarrassing. Shocking for him. This king over 127 provinces who can party for 180 days plus seven can't even get his queen, his wife, to submit. And the air of this fancy party just kind of sucked out of the room by Vashti who says, uh uh-uh, uh, not coming. Was it because she felt like she was just another possession of his? Maybe. I don't, I don't know. The text doesn't say. I doubt she felt super honored and loved by this king. But what matters is the king's reaction. That's what the author draws our attention to. He becomes furious. He becomes enraged with anger, just burning with anger. That's what the text says, he needed these important men to, to join him in battle. He expected their obedience to his commands, but he can't get his queen to obey. So embarrassing. His response is rage. He's been disrespective in, in the worst of ways. He looks powerless when his desire is to showcase power. So what's the point? A lot of people want to take Esther 1 and they want to make it a chapter on like, hey, let's talk about the dangers and the sinfulness of drunkenness. There's a lot of drinking going on at these parties. They want to take Esther chapter 1 and, and talk about like, hey, this is a great chapter for, for wives to understand why submission is so important. That is not what Esther 1 is about. This is about something entirely different. We're supposed to see the Persian Kingdom, A powerful king who only cares about himself and his agenda. He's powerful and he's angry, and this is not a safe place. There is dangerous power. That's what the author wants us to see. Decisions are made from selfish motives with impaired judgment. It's power with, you know, kind of that out-of-control temper. That's just not a good mix. It's like a big baby. I don't know. No one's safe when there's a, a a guy like this who can do whatever he wants. The author is making this point. There's no comment on Vashti's motives or the king's conduct. There's no right, wrong, good, bad, none of it. The the camouflage over these characters, their morality, it's an important element of this story. God is directing the steps of these people. He's using all of this, this human behavior, despite how it looks to us, we're reminded that God is in control. Power belongs to who? It belongs to God. You can say it. Power belongs to God. Great job. (laughs) So here's the picture. The people are, are facing a real challenge. Persian kingdom is not neverland the king has power he only cares about himself and mordecai and esther two characters that are about to be on the scene i know we're not there yet but they're so close they're going to face tremendous odds to survive this world that's what you're supposed to see who could possibly survive in this kingdom purely pagan king decides for worldly reasons to have a party with the hopes of benefiting himself and on the final days he wants his guys to see his pretty wife probably not the best motives but it sets into motion a chain of events that takes on this life of its own There will be a need for a new queen. One seemingly insignificant event will lead to the next, but God is powerfully behind all of it. All of it. Covenant that was made between God and his people long before this story. It's going to be upheld. It's going to be fulfilled. It's going to happen. Vashti's refusal, this party pooper. She draws a response from her husband that that sets up the deliverance of God's people. No miracles needed. No plagues needed. We don't need trumpets and marching around this city to bring it down. God doesn't need to raise up judges to deal with the enemies here. Just ordinary, seemingly insignificant events to remind us that this is God's providence. He has power and it's awesome through our lives god too moves in those ordinary decisions he's powerfully in control accomplishing his purpose and get this young people no matter how it looks god's powerfully in control wind keeps moving my Bible to Nehemiah. We're in Esther. Stop it, wind. Three parties, one refusal, and now these seven advisors. And we'll call this third point a pathetic king. And if you're into alliteration, you could say a pathetic potentate. That's a fancy word for king. Uh, Verse 13 to 22, I just wanna show you this really, really quick. Vashti's... Kind of public defiance it can 't stand we have a powerful king again, big baby, lots of power he 's humiliated and enraged he He has to do something to to kind of to kind of fix this. so what should be done? What do powerful kings do i don 't know, but this one turns to his advisors with some crazy names instead of these two privately working out their personal problem. It's so interesting. Ahasuerus makes a royal decree that affects everyone. He makes sure everyone knows about it. His his wounded ego responds in a way that's just so completely out of proportion to what has happened. Verse 16 to 18, for some reason, this, this guy named Memukin, he, he believes that Vashti's actions are gonna stir up some sort of wife revolt in the kingdom, that they're all gonna be wearing like Vashti t-shirts. No, you do the laundry. You cook your own food. I'm not listening to you anymore. Vashti didn't obey. I'm not gonna, that's what he thinks is going to happen with all the wives in all the kingdom. I think it's a personal fear of his, but I'm not sure. The text doesn't say, but look what happens. Vashti's refusal to come, it results in her never being able to come into his presence again. It's total overreaction. I mean, I don't know. Junior hires don't even react this way. It's You guys are better than this guy. You don't wanna come into my presence when you're called? fine. You don't ever get to be in my presence again. I'm just going to do the opposite. I'm going to make it so weird. And that's what he does. And we see in verse 19, look, Queen Vashti's lost her title. Now she's just Vashti. The king on advice of his counselors here, he, he escalates this, again, private matter. Only a few people knew. Now everyone will know about it. He publicizes his embarrassing event. Most people just like, how do I get this to go away as soon as possible? Not Ahasuerus, not Memukin. They're like, hey, I know, let's put it on Instagram. Let's make this thing go viral. Everybody needs to know throughout the whole kingdom and that's what they do. Verse 20, look at it. It's gonna go through all the kingdom. It, It pleased the king to do it this way. Verse 21, he thought he was somehow saving face, I guess. And what he's unable to do with Vashti, he commands every man to do. Every man needs to be ruler over his own household, even though he isn't. And the author's doing us a great favor here because he's helping us to see how fragile this king's power actually is. He has no power over his wife. He needs advice deciding what to do. He can't make decisions on his own. I mean, is, is that really power? It seems kind of pathetic. And this chapter, it sets the stage for our, our story to follow. It sets us up so well for what's ahead. This is all about the worldly power and how it seems to be at first too much, too powerful, too rich, too big, too great, too strong. How is Esther ever going to overcome this decree that's about to be set in motion? How is she ever going to survive? But but a closer look, even in chapter one, reveals something different. Even this powerful king has no ability to determine the destiny of God's People, He only looks powerful. In the end, he's kind of pathetic. And it teaches us power must lie somewhere else. And with the help of God's word, we we already know where power lies with God. Power belongs to God. We get this sneak peek, even at the beginning of this story, it lets us in on this really helpful truth. These forces that threaten the future. They're not much of a threat at all. It's a, it's kind of a joke. You're meant to chuckle. You're meant to laugh. It's funny how powerful they seem, but in the end, how helpless they really are. We're reminded of another great truth in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart. It's like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh, in the hand of the Lord. God can turn the heart of the king any direction he wants. It's not a big deal. You go to the beach and you cut that little channel in with your shovel. I'm sure some of you still do that. My four-year-old loves to do that. I was kidding, by the way. I don't think that's what you do. But you do that and the water comes in and you can make that water go wherever you want. God's saying, I do the same thing with the most powerful kings and leaders in this world. I turn their hearts whatever direction I want. True power belongs to God. And that it helps us as we think of our own day and our own world that's so full of corrupt power, power that can shut down a church. And that's happening. Power that can threaten your future as a Christian. And that's happening around our world. Power that, that might make it very difficult for you to continue to obey God. And as we think of that kind of power, we must think this threat is so similar to the threat that we see even back in Esther chapter one. When compared to the power of God, there really isn't much of a threat at all, no matter how it looks, not much of a threat. We don't have to worry, and not because we have some power in ourselves, no, but because of who God is, because of the power that God has, And Esther is a a story that's told in such a way that God is never mentioned. We talked about that last week. God appears absent here. But the appearance of this absent God, it doesn't mean that God actually isn't there. Esther is a story that helps us lean on other parts of the Bible. It's meant to do that. It's purposed for us to, to, to know of God throughout scripture, the things we should believe and trust and hold on to when we might be tempted to say, God, are you here? God, are you in control? We let the rest of scripture teach us and inform us. And in this first chapter, we close that final verse holding tight to that truth of Psalm 62:11. Power belongs to God, no matter how it looks. It doesn't belong to some human king. It belongs to the king of kings. It belongs to God alone. Heavenly Father, thank you for this rich, rich passage. God, one that helps us understand and realize we desperately need to know your word. A story like this God, it causes us to wonder what you're doing, but when we apply the truth that we know about you, oh, we see it so clearly. God, thank you for showing us how powerful you are. Lord Jesus, we know that you perfectly demonstrated the power you have, power under control. God, we praise you for patiently teaching us that we have have nothing to fear, No matter how powerful the leaders in our world may look, Jesus, we know that power belongs to you. God, use a message like this to draw young people to you. May they see that this world, we put our trust in you. There's truly nothing to fear. God, without you, though, it remains a scary and a dangerous place. Thank you for being our place of refuge Thank you for being the God that we can run to and find safety and peace. Write these truths on our heart. God, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.